Here he is, one of the four best-looking men in the world. That's not the first time I've heard that. Here, here Miss Jackie, that's for you. Miss Connie, whoever hits it. We're in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. Start in verse 16. So, Father, we are glad to be in the house of the Lord today. Lord, I'm thankful for this family. Lord, as we sang this morning, we, we just say we're so thankful for the cross, for the suffering Messiah who redeemed us by his own blood. And Lord, I pray that as we read and study your word, our hearts would burn within us. Lord, as the, the two men on the road to Emmaus walk with Jesus unknowingly, and when that revelation comes to them that they've walked with the Lord, they say, did our hearts not burn within us? We love you. We love you, Lord. It's all about you. All of our lives are for you. Lord, we belong fully to your lordship. You're beautiful in all your ways. Wonderful in all your works. Magnificent in every attribute of your character, Lord. Hallelujah. I love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this week I was gifted um, Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon's sermons, and I was just tickled. You guys know I like books. I was just really tickled, uh, especially like old books. And I was thinking of um, a C.S. Lewis point this week. Um, C.S. Lewis said that you should never read two modern books in a row. He said if you read a new book, you should immediately go to an old book to balance your ignorance. And then he, he said this. He said, a new book is still on trial, and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It, is not, it has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages, and all its hidden implications, often unsuspected by the author himself, have to be brought to light. Lewis said, I never read two modern authors in a row. Lewis had this theme, I want to turn to a Charles Spurgeon thought here, but I want to show you a consistency between a thought from Lewis and a thought from Spurgeon. Lewis had this theme in his life. Um, he was adamantly against what he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, which was the idea that if something's modern, it must be true, and everything that's old must be false. Lewis said, actually, it's quite the opposite. Those things which are old that have been sustained throughout the generations must possess something true, and these things that are new and modern, it's only a matter of time before we realize what kind of fruit they really bear. So he said, he said, don't fall for chronological snobbery and think that the modern psychologists or philosophers or scientists of the day necessarily all have truth. He said, give it some time and let their ideas be tested by the fire of history. Spurgeon echoed kind of a similar thought in a sermon on the sovereignty of God and God's role in salvation. He argued that God throughout all of history is proving his sovereignty, is proving his great supremacy. And so Spurgeon, he kind of teases his listeners through history and he makes them think of the Egyptian gods of Moses' day, for instance. When Moses is standing off with Pharaoh, remember Moses throws down his staff, it turns into a serpent, and then some magician throws down his staff and it turns to a serpent, but of course Moses' staff swallows the thing up. And Spurgeon says, where are the Egyptian gods today? Has God not 
overthrown them, totally thrown them down completely? Are they not totally done away with? And so much of the Old Testament are the prophets dealing with the prophets of Baal. And Spurgeon argues, where is Baal today? Where are the Baal worshippers? Has Baal not been totally done away with? Then he, he shifts from talking about the Egyptian gods Dagon and, and Baal and, and these, these false deities that were worshipped throughout the Old Testament, but now are nowhere to be found. And then he, then he shifts to talk about, um, Spurgeon talks about some leaders in the scriptural narrative. And so, for instance, he talks about um, Nebuchadnezzar and how he looks out over Babylon. And he says, look what I've done. He, you know, in pride, he says, look at this great land. And the scripture says that Nebuchadnezzar was driven in the wilderness to live like a beast. His nails grow like eagle's nails, his hair like feathers. And it's not until he repents in humility that he's given his position back. And then he turns to Herod in Acts chapter 12, where Herod speaks before a great crowd, and the people say, the voice of a god and not a man. And the scripture says that worms ate the man up. He was struck down in the moment. And he says, even in leadership, is God not showing his own supremacy through all of history? And then he turns to philosophy. And, and so, the, like, like new ideas and thinking and worldviews. And, and this is what he says. He says, when man has found the vanity of one system, his eyes have sparkled at another. If Aristotle will not suffice, here is Bacon, who is a philosopher of the day. Now I shall know everything. And he sets to work and he says, this new philosophy, it'll last forever. He lays his stones with fair colors. And he thinks that every truth he piles up is a precious and perishable truth. But alas, another century comes and it's to be found wood, hay, and stubble. A new sect of philosophers will rise up who refute their predecessors. So too, we have wise men in this day, secularists and so on, who fancy that they have obtained the truth. But within another 50 years... And mark that word, this hair, he was talking about his own hair, this hair shall not be silvered over with gray until the last of that race, those men shall have perished and that man shall be thought a fool that was ever connected with those thoughts. Systems of infidelity pass away like a, like a dew drop before the Son of God. For God says, I am God and beside me there is no one else. He says, this Bible is the stone that shall break in powder philosophy. This is the mighty battering ram that shall dash all systems of philosophy into pieces. This is the stone that a woman may yet hurl upon the head of every Abimelech, and he shall be utterly destroyed. O church of God, fear not, thou shalt do wonders. Wise men shall be confounded, and thou shalt know, and they too, that he is God. And beside him there is no one else. So Spurgeon is showing that throughout all of history, God is revealing his own sovereignty and his own supremacy. And then he, then he turns to philosophers. Of course, no one clings to Aristotle anymore. No one's talking about Plato's forms anymore. And so we have new philosophers and new secularists who rise to the day. And everyone oozes and awes over the writings. But Spurgeon says, I tell you before the hair on my head is gray, these men will be proven to be fools. And a new generation will rise and condemn their ignorance. But, Spurgeon says, but the church of God will stand. But the gospel of Christ Jesus has worked for thousands of years. There, there are new philosophies that will rise. There are new worldviews and new ideologies that men with big brains and ties will propagate. And books will sell. Lots of books will sell. But give it a generation 
and the coming generation will see this does not work. This is not true. But Spurgeon says, the word of God, with this new truth, the word of God will crush every fresh philosophy. Lewis says, modern writing and modern thinking, it's still to be tested. Don't, don't, don't run to it and cling to it as if it's absolutely true. He says, don't fall for chronological snobbery. Look to see what truths have borne fruit for generations. And then Spurgeon says, don't you see that for all of history, every God that has opposed Yahweh, it's only a matter of time before they're thrown down. And Spurgeon says, and the, God of, the gods of our day, the false deities, the false religious systems, they will fall. God will crush them under his mighty hand. But God's gospel, the plan for redemption, it works, it has worked, and it will work, and the church of God will stand, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her, and culture can rage, and philosophers can philosophize, and secularists can write articles and slander, but the church of God, which is built upon the rock, founded upon divine revelation, will be sustained, and in another hundred years, all of our enemies will crumble, and the church will still be thriving. And we rest in the divine nature of our message. Now, now that's, what, that's what Lewis is highlighting, that's what Spurgeon is highlighting, and that's what Paul's going to highlight in our text today. That the gospel and that the word of God is divine revelation. It is spoken by a God who is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, this word spoken is true when, when heaven and earth pass away. The word will remain forever. And so we are founded upon divine revelation. But Spurgeon and Lewis and what Paul will say is that every generation will have to wrestle down human thinking. And there's the dichotomy that Paul's going to ride today. He's going to call the false teachers who are assaulting the Colossian church. He's going to call them men who reason with human philosophy. And human thinking and, and the flesh as it reasons, will always fall. But when you build your life on divine revelation, again, God is not a man that he should lie. This word is true. This gospel works. The Holy Spirit has always been sweet to every people, to every generation. Those who locked the door of their closet, sat their butt on the ground, and exalted Jesus, found the sweetness of the Holy Spirit. That has not changed. Okay, let's read our text, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to highlight, again, the dichotomy, the dichotomy that Paul is drawing here of human reasoning and divine revelation, the gospel of God in Christ, the mystery of God to redeem the world in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If... 
With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now give me a, a minute to build the context again, and then we'll, we'll try to dive into these ideas where Paul says they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. And then he says, why would you submit to human precepts and teaching? He said, they have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, people who practice these things look smart, but it doesn't work. Therefore, the text begins with the therefore, um, so we, we need to retreat to the passage before to find the context of what's being said. Remember last week we read Paul's uh, his line of thought when he says to the Colossian church, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made of, circum, uh, of human hands. You were raised to newness of life in Christ. Your record of debt was nailed to the cross, and all of your enemies have been publicly shamed. So Paul says to the Colossian church, you have had spiritual surgery by the hands of the Holy Spirit. You have new life in Jesus. Your entire record of debt has been nailed to the cross. You don't have debt anymore. And then he says, all of your enemies have been publicly conquered. In other words, why would you now turn to human philosophy and to human teaching and to act like you still have something to accomplish? It's all been accomplished in Christ. The false teachers of the day were saying to the born-again church, you need to come to our teaching, come to our philosophy, so that you can ascend to new spiritual heights. Paul says, no, you died when you were buried in the waters of baptism and you were raised to new life. You are dead to this world. You don't need to rise to new higher spirituality or a new higher philosophy. You have been buried with Christ and raised with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You are new creations. You are new beings. You are totally, radically recreated in Christ. And then Paul says, ignore them. Resist them. Now, so as we turn to our text today, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you regards to food or drink, or festivals, or new moons, or Sabbaths. Now, we, we've set up until now that Paul seems to be dealing with a form of early Gnosticism. Gnosticism, again, is the idea that everything of matter is evil and everything of spirit is good. Therefore, to arise to higher spirituality, you need to deny your flesh, punish your body. That's essentially what Gnosticism taught. But here, we find Paul addressing um, ideas of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. So he says, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to Festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, those are Jewish high days. Most scholars believe that Paul is not now turning to a different sect of false teachers and saying to Judaizers, don't let them tell you that you have to be Jewish before you can be a Christian, that most likely what we find here is that this early sect of this early heresy that the Colossian church is dealing with is syncretistic. Meaning that they are grabbing pieces from the Old Testament 
They're grabbing pieces from Greek philosophy. They're grabbing pieces from Christianity. And they're pulling together a new world religion, a new religion that, that kind of pieces whatever they want to piece together. It's a little bit of Old Testament. It's a little bit of Greek philosophy. And then throw a little bit of Jesus on top. So now Paul's going to begin to address the church and tell them never to allow anyone to pressure them or to belittle them on the basis of festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Again, those are, those are Old Testament days that should have been celebrated. And Paul says that all of these days, they ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. They are shadows of the substance that which was to come. Now, um, I think that the, how do you use this word right? The, 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 the Hebrew roots movement that really had a heyday maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago in, in, our, in the States, I think that it's starting to wane a bit, but there, there was an emphasis of, of trying to return to the Hebrew roots, to our Jewish roots, and trying to uncover all that we can uncover from the Old Testament to learn all the ideas that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, on the surface, all of that is good. On the surface, there's nothing wrong with going to the Old Testament and finding Christ. But what happened in the church is there began, began to be men and women who would say, um, if you don't wear a proper head covering when you pray, then your prayers don't count. Or if you don't worship on Saturday because the Sabbath was Saturday, then your worship doesn't count. Or that New Testament believers, you ought to um, deny yourself pork or shellfish. And if you're not doing those things, then you're not spiritual. And what we need to say and what Paul would say, I know this is a little bit teachy, but just listen to me. What Paul would say is, um, if someone invites you to celebrate Passover, to have a Paschal meal, if someone in the church says to you, you should come over for a Passover dinner, it'll be a beautiful time of fellowship, and we see so much of Jesus' sacrifice in the way that the meal is prepared. It, it'll really open your eyes to so many parts of Jesus. If someone says that to you, A-OK, there's nothing anti-biblical about that. There's nothing wrong with New Testament saints saying, let's celebrate tabernacles and talk about the way in which this foreshadowed the deliverance that Jesus would bring to the church. And, and I think that's how the movement probably started. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to have enough wisdom and discernment to recognize that sometimes there's a slippery slope. And what starts with, you should come celebrate Passover with us, will learn so much about Jesus, can turn into, if you don't celebrate Passover, you're less of a Christian. If you don't celebrate Passover, in the way in which Jews would have celebrated Passover, then you're not really born again. Or you're less spiritual if you don't participate in the feast. And Paul would say to that, garbage. Paul would say, the Passover is beautiful because it points us to Christ. Paul would say, all the feasts, trumpets, tabernacles, they all point to their shadows of what Jesus would do to redeem humanity. And so as long as you participate in those things, recognizing that they are not salvific, Participating in a Passover feast is not salvific. Worshiping on Saturday alone, that is not a New Testament requirement, nor is it salvific. 
what we can do is we can, we can say, Christ is Redeemer. As long as you jump through these Old Testament hoops. And Paul would say, you've got it exactly opposite. Christ is Redeemer. Watch how these feasts, these high days point to Christ. Watch how all that God did throughout the Old Testament was always revealing His divine mystery, which was God in the flesh. Watch how, Jesus says this, um, all of the scriptures are about me. Paul says these things are good as long as you remember that they are pointing to Christ. But these false teachers are grabbing hold of Old Testament ideas and then laying them on top of a New Testament church and saying, if you don't do these things, you're not real Christians. And Paul is saying, real Christians do one thing. Lose themselves in love with Jesus. Cling totally to the cross of Christ. And what what they're doing in this type of synchronism, in this type of clinging to works, creating hoops, is they're retreating to a merit-based salvation. Hearing what I'm saying with that? They're retreating to the concept of you've got to check off A, B, C, D, E in order to be saved. And merit-based salvation is religion that was conjured up in the minds of humanity. But God's plan was never merit-based salvation. God's plan from the dawn of time was the Lamb of God which was slain before the foundations of the earth. What does that mean? That means that from creation, God had ordained and planned for Jesus to be sacrificed to cleanse humanity. And so humanity always wants to turn to merit-based redemption. If I do enough, I can build up my own righteousness to look God in the face and say, look, I'm like you. But God, from the foundation of creation, He never planned merit-based salvation. He always planned blood atonement. So, Paul is saying again, you're thinking like men. You're not thinking the thoughts after God. Then he says, they insist on worship of angels. They, ins- they go on and on about their own visions puffed up by their sensuous minds. And they insist on asceticism. Now, if you give me just a moment to try to build the, the, the concept of asceticism that's coming out of our text here. Sometimes our text, the, the ESV translated the, the word asceticism for us asceticism, but sometimes it's translated as false humility, because the Hebrew, the Hebrew, the Greek here, it, it, it literally means humble, or to, to be poor and destitute. And so what Paul is saying is that they, they promote a kind of false humility, of, of false poorness of spirit. They say, look at us, we go hungry. Look at us. We give all of our money to the poor. They fast and put on a big show with their fasting in hopes that you would see what they're doing and bolster them up. And then they say, by our fasting and by our being poor and by our 
going sleepless and hungry. We have entered into a new trance, a new spiritual state, a new place of revelation, which Paul again calls their own imagination. And what we find in the, in the passage today is that people who fall for hyper-spirituality always fall for false humility. Do you understand what I mean by that? People who want to feel more spiritual than everyone else always fall for a sense of performance. They want you to think that they have such great prayer lives. They want you to think that they, they're so selfless. And because they want to be hyper-spiritual and they want you to think they're so selfless, they have to do it in front of you. And what helps, what, what justifies doing it in front of you is embracing new teaching that says that you have to do it in order to be spiritual. So now I'm practicing my self-righteousness before you. Think of Jesus saying, when you fast, wash your face. Right? Go about your day. Wash your face. Don't show off in front of everyone. Because those who pray in the streets, big, loud, long prayers, they're only praying to be heard by other people. They've already received their reward. Jesus is approaching the concepts of pharisaical religion, hyper-spirituality, that produces false humility when he says, make sure that when you fast, nobody knows what you're doing. But what these men are doing, they're fasting, they're praying, they're giving, they're resisting sleep, and then they're going to the church and they're saying, look at us, we fast more than you, we pray more than you, we give more money away than you, and because we do so, we have special visions and secret ideas. Aren't we great? And, and, and that, is, that is false humility. That is a kind of humility that is actually anti-Christ. It is anti-everything Jesus taught. Now, obviously, we say all the time that humility is the chief characteristic of Christ Jesus. Andrew Murray said, without humility, we would not have salvation. Because Jesus, in humility, left heaven and was born in a manger poor and destitute in order to die on a cross, be spit in his face so that he could redeem us. If Christ were not humble, we would have no salvation. So in a way, humility is the chief characteristic of Christianity, but humility is not flashy. And humility is not showing off in front of other people in order to build this kind of human merit-based salvation. Their, their false humility, their, their kind of merit-based works, they said lead the, led them to angelic visions and other visions that produced this new teaching. Now, what was their new teaching exactly? What were their visions exactly? I have no clue. Who are these men exactly? History has no idea. Why? Because everything they said was founded upon human reasoning. It was burned up by the fire of the true gospel. When Paul preached and taught, those men fled and cowered. We have to try to piece together what their ideas were because we don't know what their ideas were because it was founded upon human reasoning and it failed. It crumbled. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? So when C.S. Lewis says, don't fall for chronological snobbery. Don't think that everyone who has a new teaching and a modern idea must be true. In a matter of time, the coming generation will say they're all idiots. 
And so as we approach the Colossian text, I can tell you exactly who Paul was. I can tell you exactly what he taught. I can tell you where he was from, about his education, who trained him. I can tell you about his salvation experience. I can tell you about his theological constructs. I can tell you exactly who Paul was, exactly who, what Paul taught, because Paul's life was built upon truth that endures for generations. But I cannot tell you anything about these men because they built their lives on human reasoning and the next generation rose up and said, those men were dumb. Throw away their books. It's garbage. And so even as we approach the Colossian text and we try to reason and understand all the ideas that Paul's combating, even there we find the truth that human philosophy fails. That men who bolster up their own visions and their own ideas and their own spirituality, history knows nothing of them. Nothing that they did or produced bore eternal fruit. I can't find their names in any books. I don't find their teaching helpful. Why? Why, church? Why? Because Paul said, it doesn't work. In other words, people tried their religion, tried their ideas, but it's not fruitful. It's dead. That false gospels cannot produce new life. The Holy Ghost is not involved in false gospel preaching. It's dry and dead and cold. Oh, for a matter of time, there might be some some demonic presence or some emotion or energy or adrenaline that helps bolster the thing up, but it will not be sustained for generations because it's not built upon the eternal God of the universe. I don't know why I'm going to tell you this. I was talking to my seven-year-old last night in the car. We were driving back from Buford, and she was talking to me all about the goodness of Jesus, and it was beautiful. She was going on and on about how good Jesus is. And um, I was trying to tell her about some of Jonathan Edwards that I had read that morning, and I've told you before that I I was not made to teach kids because I, I cannot, I cannot. And I was trying to tell her that Jonathan Edwards, she's like, who's Jonathan Edwards? I don't know. Um, said that, because we're finite beings, we are, we are finite creations. And because God is infinite and eternal, that when we cross into glorification, or when we, um, when we receive our new bodies, when we see Him and we become like Him, when we enter heaven into that perfect state where we no longer sin or desire to sin, when we are fully glorified. He said that even our glorification, it, 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 it's, not, it's not as if it's instantaneous and final. It is instantaneous, meaning that the moment I see Jesus, I'm changed. But in that moment, I don't have a full revelation of God's goodness because God's goodness is infinite. In other words, there will be no point in in all of eternity in heaven when I can look at Christ and say, I know all of you. And so my glorification is an infinite eternal process because I'm constantly looking at Him and learning more of Him and falling deeper in love with Him because His goodness is not finite. It's infinite. And so forever I'm just enjoying it. I'm trying to explain that to a seven-year-old. She's like, Mm-hmm. So back to he holds the whole world in his hands. That's what she was saying. <laughs> it's 
so, but you hear what I'm trying to say. God's nature is infinite and his word is true. It can't return void. When God speaks, it creates. And when God speaks, all that he intends to accomplish will be accomplished. When you build your life upon the spoken word of God, upon, and this is why it's so important, church, hear me, it's so important that we firm up our convictions concerning the word of God. I don't believe this to be mere human thought. We believe that this is inspired, inerrant, God, uh, Paul called it um, theonostos, God's breath. This Bible is God's word. And when I build my life on God's word, I'm not just building my life upon a text. I'm building my life upon the infinite, eternal God of the universe, upon his breath upon his word and that word cannot be shaken that word cannot return void the 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 efficacy and the permanency of that word builds the foundation for the church so that the church cannot fail the church cannot crumble my life certainly can be taken away from me there's no doubt about that but 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 even if hell takes the breath from my lungs my life is sure because it's built upon an eternal God's spoken word. But human reasoning, right? You, you, and and what, what's funny is that even Darwin today is being thrown away. It's like, oh, obviously that was dumb. Why did we believe that for so long? Um, e- even these um, atheistic worldviews, agnostic worldviews, the, um, sometimes called the four horsemen, these, these great philosophers and scientists who are building new constructs, I promise you, in a hundred years, everyone will laugh. and say, wasn't that dumb? There will still be a church founded upon the eternal word of God thriving. So you've got to choose what you're going to build your life upon. Will you build your life upon the eternal, spoken and recorded word of God that cannot be shaken or will you allow human philosophy and human reasoning to pigeonhole you back into merits-based religion and, and even even you, you, you could say in a sense that atheism is not a religion in that it doesn't worship a, a, a God outside of the intellect that's really the God of atheism which is super dumb like how do you worship that hunk of matter in your head it weighs three pounds it's definitely not infallible but but even there even in even in those systems there is some kind of merit-based be a good person perform well work harder give more to the poor of course the morality is shaped by your own preferences which is very convenient right pick what morality you want to obey that's great um that works but you, you slide into some kind of do-it-yourself, work harder, be more, proof mentality. And that is the fruit of human thinking, human philosophy, that Paul says doesn't work to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, in humanity, and this is, again, this is verifiable. Like, I don't even need data to prove this. In humanity... There is what the scripture calls flesh. There is a brokenness. In humanity, there is a a constant tendency towards self-destruction. 
right? Society is lobbying for open, free sexuality. Well, anyone who stops for 10 minutes realizes that sexuality, that sex itself is a very spiritual thing. And they say, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It'll be awesome. Yeah, it'll be awesome until you're heartbroken, your body begins to cave in on you. Right, right? Like, free sexuality does not produce good fruit. You know what has worked for generations, though? Imagine this. God's plan. One man and one woman in a family. It's worked. And, and so, human tradition and human philosophy, it pigeonholes you into this work harder, do better, be more, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And Paul says, that doesn't work at stopping what's actually killing you. You have a disease. You have a disease that's eating away all of humanity. And it's like you have this nasty infection, and you keep just rubbing dirt in it. Like, watch this work. Maybe spit on it. I don't know. Paul's saying, there, there is a salve. There is a healing balm of Gilead. There is a remedy to humanity's disease. It's death in Christ Jesus and being recreated, reborn. And every generation, every generation has to recognize the shallowness of human reasoning and choose to cling to the, the perfectness of the gospel which has always worked. Think of Augustine, the North African man who, who would say of himself that he was a sex addict. Sitting in a garden one day, hears a kid say, take and read. Starts to read the book of Romans. He says that his heart begins to beat fast. That his life becomes totally transformed. And a man who was a selfish sex addict goes on to be the greatest theologian of his day by far and the bishop of Hippo and an incredible man of God who changed the world because the gospel can take sex addicts and make bishops who are theological lions. The gospel can take drug addicts and make missionaries who shake the nations. The gospel can take Mary Magdalene's prostitutes and make them mighty women of God who serve and love and become the epitome of true worship. The gospel can take poor men, rich men, sin-riddled men, bitter men, and transform him into new creations that are used in the hands of God, fulfilled in Christ, and who can say, I have tasted and seen the goodness of God. The gospel works. The gospel works. Essentially what Paul is saying today. Everything they're trying to tell you, Colossian church, is heresy. It's human reasoning. It's their own sensuous minds. Again, we have no idea what they even said because no one thought it was worth recording. Everything they're trying to say to you is frail and weak. And I would say the same to you today. Our society is no different. We've got nice new packages of philosophy and worldview and what's going to change the world and what's going to work. And, and I, I would say, don't be chronological snobs. Maybe we should use what's always worked. Right? Like, like maybe we should look at our grandparents and say, what changed your life? What brought healing to your communities? Go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Seth, would you come for me?
So Spurgeon says, every generation will have new philosophers and new teachers to bring human tradition and ideas, but give it a matter, give it some days, and everyone will realize the ignorance of it. The word of God will be sustained forever. Lewis says, read old books, because these new books, they're still on trial. They've not been tested by time. And Paul says, don't let them judge you with your human reasoning. It's flesh. It's from the mind of man, not from the mind of God. And it doesn't work. It cannot change your life. Human reasoning cannot redeem. And Paul says, essentially what he says to the Colossian church, why don't you stick with what works? Why don't you keep living in communion with Jesus, the lover of your souls? Why don't you hold fast to the garments of Christ where you received the power of the Spirit? Hallelujah.